Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Laura Carney. She is a writer and copy editor in New York. She's been published by the Washington Post, the Associated Press, The Hill, Runner's World, People Magazine, Guideposts, Good Housekeeping, The Fix, Upworthy, Maria Shriver's Sunday Paper, and other places. And her book, My Father's List, How Living My Dad's Dreams Set Me Free, has been published by Post Hill Press. Her work as a copy editor has been primarily in magazines for 20 years, including Good Housekeeping, People, Guideposts, Vanity Fair, and GQ. Welcome, Laura. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm honored to talk to you, actually. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I'm really happy that you're here. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and I I had to restrain myself from having you on before your book came out because I was so interested <laughs> in talking to you about what your launch was like because there's a lot to dig into here. I mean, yeah. okay, so I, <laughs> me and you, we, we run in the same circles in the writing community. And so I've been aware of your book for a while now. But for those who are new to your book, can you share a bit about My Father's List? Yeah. And, and also, I just want to add that the fact that you think I run in your circles is amazing to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're always on the same places, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you're, you're just such an amazing writer. Um, oh, my father's list is about my six-year mission to uh, finish the bucket list of my dad, who died because of a distracted driver, um, a teenager who was using her phone, um, when I was 25. And you know, we didn't know about the list until my brother found it um, 13 years later when he was moving into his first house and he gave it to me. And I decided to check off all of the remaining items on it. There were about 54. And I actually originally gave myself a four-year deadline because the first item on the list said that he hoped to live until the year 2020. But then the pandemic happened, so mm -hmm. I had to extend it a little bit. But I, I actually was writing the book just about the whole time I was doing the list in parts. So even though I just finished the list in December, I actually have had the book out in June. <laughs> wow, that's really fast, right? But listeners should note that you were working on it in conjunction with completing the list. I was, you know, it started as a blog. Um, mm -hmm. I had a website set up for it. And during the first year, I was really writing these very, very detailed blog posts about each <laughs> list item I was doing. And then I got an agent and, you know, then it just became, okay, maybe I can draw from some of these blog posts. And, you know, I learned it, it behooved me to really take copious notes as I went along. And when I had time, I would write more chapters. And, you know, it was always sort of a work in progress. Also, I should add one of my dad's list items right near the top was write and have a few novels published. So that kept me from chickening out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so, I love learning how the sauce is made or how, what is that expression? I'm really bad at idioms, but like, I love to know the, the nuts and bolts. The secret sauce. The secret sauce, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. So I'm dying to know, we have the finished product. We have this book, My Father's List. You started working on the material as a blog post. So when when did you get the hunch? Was it before you got an agent, after you got the agent, that this was going to make a book? Or did people start to say, oh, you should write a book? I really am curious when you started to really think, okay, this material is going to be used in a book. It was always going to be a book 
from from the moment that I decided to, to do the list. I knew I wanted to write a book about it because I had actually wanted to write a book about my dad's death and about our relationship for about 13 years since he died. And, and I could mm. never really find the confidence to do it or, you know, um, self-belief or even, you know, I, I just always sort of thought it's going to be such a bummer. Like, I don't want to write a sad mm-hmm. book. He was such a happy person. So it mm-hmm. really was the moment when we found the list that my husband didn't just say, you know, this is like, you have to finish this for him. He also said, this is your book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to tell you that, you know, the, the framing of the book, the structure, it's, it's, a, it's a very sad inspiration. So I don't want to, you know, we're talking about memoir right, and the book yeah. and the excitement of creating this piece of this story that everyone can consume, but it's the inception is the passing of your father. And so I want to make sure that, you know, I, I tell you that I'm sorry for your loss and Thank you. you know yeah and his his personality really does come through in the pages of your book um, but it is a really interesting thing this this work we do as memoir writers and personal essay writers of taking grief and taking often taking grief and the really difficult parts of life and turning them into something that can be consumed what was that like for you as you were writing the book yeah i mean i think that's what artists are supposed to do you know, that's that's why we're mm-hmm. here, right? Like we turn uh, pain into art and then we make life a little bit more bearable for all other human beings. And that's not mine. I think I'm I think I'm poaching from Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> when, when I say that. Um, but it's it's or even I think Joseph Campbell used to write about that, too. Just the importance of the role of the artist. Mm-hmm. I don't think I even really viewed myself as a, a, an artist in the way that I do now until I started writing this book. I was a journalist. I, you know, I used to be um, a fine artist. I'm an illustrator too, but it really wasn't until I started turning my experience into a work of art that I started to see myself that way and and also started to recognize that doing this was healing me. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was healing this grief that I was still carrying inside of me that I didn't know. And and usually that's how it is mm-hmm. when people are ha- have trauma in addition to grief, they're sort of frozen in time and they don't really know that they are. So, you know, while my initial idea for this being a book was I wanted it to be activism, you know, because of the way my dad died. And this might raise awareness that, hey, those people in cars are actual human beings. It started that way. But I guess maybe because I'm an artist, it 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 grew into mm-hmm. a book about grief, period. You know, a book about fathers and daughters, period. A book about, um, I think, my own self-actualization. I really think more than anything else, that's what my father's list is about, how my dad trained me as a young girl to prioritize becoming the most authentic version of me and how doing his list helped me to remember that. Mm-hmm. I imagine it brought you closer to him in so many ways. And I'm curious about the, the question of grief where I think what you said just now, and maybe you can clarify it for me, that you, you of course you had lost your father and there was grief there, but you didn't fully understand is it the scope of your grief or your trauma until you started writing it? I didn't comprehend until I, you know, it's not just the writing of the book, which was terrifying for me, like on many, many occasions. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But mm-hmm. it, it wasn't just that. But but the fact that these list items, these dreams that he wrote down when he was 29 years old, a lot of them were kind of death defying, <laughs> you know, like yeah. sky, skydive at least once, swim the width of a river, you know, go sailing by myself, um, drive a Corvette. Like these these were scary things to me. And they were made extra scary by the fact that my dad died 
driving. I became a person who only drives when I have to uh, since that happened. And I became Mm -hmm. a person who actually was quite... I don't want to use the word phobic because it wasn't that bad, but I definitely was prioritizing my loved one's safety and my own safety at all times, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of unconsciously. And I think the way that that happened when I was 25 years old definitely shaped the way I started to approach my own life as far as what kind of risks am I willing to take and and how am I actually living? You know, I I put a lot of stock Mm -hmm. into if I die in a car crash tomorrow, how will people remember me? That really Mm. became my main focus in life. And it was making it so that I wasn't having a lot of fun. You know, if you Mm -hmm. spend all your time worried about dying, you're not really living. So Mm. it was Mm. once I started doing these incredibly enriching assignments, like jumping out of an airplane, that I started to recognize, (laughs) you know, hey, this is supposed to be a fun thing. (laughs) This whole like being alive (laughs) gig that we're doing. I've been missing out on that because of trauma and and because of unresolved grief. So in a lot of ways, I felt like because we found the list six months after my wedding, this was my dad's spirit setting me free, you know, not just from conditioning that I had put on myself about what am I going to be in society now that I'm married, you know, like as a wife, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. setting me free from this trauma that had been controlling me that I didn't even realize that it was. Mm-hmm. And and what were the elements in writing the book that most challenged you? And I mean, in like a craft, e- either emotionally challenging specifically to this book, or maybe from a craft perspective in writing the book. I think it was writing about my dad's funeral. Um, yeah, I think that was the hardest part for me. Um, I, in fact, I kept putting it off and putting it off because it was like, it's just a place that lived in the back of my brain that I did not want to visit. <laughs> mm. um, and, and, you know, I've heard this is very common with, with sudden death. Your brain goes into this very weird place when that happens where you kind of, like I've had people tell me things that happened during that week that I have no memory of at all. Mm. So like, what kind of memoirist are you if you, if you, if you can't trust mm. your own memory about what happened? You know, uh, what what happened there when I did finally force myself to go in and describe the scenes of that funeral and of learning of his death and how we how we all experienced that week in my family, um, you know, mostly me, though, I mean, I'm describing my own story. I was forced to remember it in a new way. Um, mm-hmm. It was almost like the EMDR therapy I write about in the book that mm-hmm. I had when I was younger. You know, you, you retell a story you've already lived and in the retelling of it, you're now I think with the book, it was like what I was doing was I was now integrating it into the larger story of my life, even though, you know, memoirs know that a memoir isn't your whole life. It's just, you know, kind of a snippet in time that you're focusing on. But the Mm -hmm. fact that I was able to incorporate this very scary event into a larger story was helping me to accept what happened. And Mm. and I think sometimes when people go through grief and it's a traumatic, sudden death like that, they almost start to become friends with it, you know? Like you're, you're living with it for so long that it can feel like if I let this go, I'm either dishonoring the person who died or, you know, I'm not doing my, my pittance, you know? Like, like I, can't, mm-hmm. I can't really fully put it into words, but, but it's a feeling of like- I think I like, understand what you're saying. Almost yeah. a betrayal, a betrayal or not, not keeping them in the, in the place in your heart or in your experience that they are supposed to be because you're transcending what what became of them? Well, also a person's death affects so many other people too. So it's like I was taking something that truly was terrible and had affected so many people and I was making it part of my story. 
and mm-hmm. I was reframing it. But you know, ultimately, I decided that it was okay and actually very therapeutic for me to do that because I needed the story to exist. You know, my dad was such, he was the kind of person, and I try to, to just, you know, portray this in the book. He was the kind of person who was almost like a rambler. You know, he had so mm-hmm. many different friends and family all over the place. And I think when a person like that dies, it makes it almost like, where's my tribe? You know, like, like mm-hmm. where are the other grievers? And mm-hmm. I think that was a big part of the reason that I felt like he needs to be memorialized somehow. So mm-hmm. like I'm I'm the one who can do it so I'll do it and and I think what ended up happening for me in in doing that was I was able to own my feelings about it you know I was mm-hmm. able to say well here's how I feel about this person and here's how I felt when he died and and in doing that it felt less cumbersome it mm-hmm. it felt mm-hmm. like not like something had happened to me anymore but rather mm-hmm. this is part of the story of his life and it's also the part of the story of my life and that's okay Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are two things that I want to remember. I want to talk about family members, but there's another thing. You mentioned about memoir and, and how you wondered how you could be a memoirist. I know you're kind of being, you know, funny about it, but and not have a good memory or not remember this. But I think that something I've really learned, and I know I've talked about it on the show with other guests, is just how faulty and I think porous and strange memory can be and you know of course like part of what I talk about and think about is how the way we remember things is telling us what our story is about but I do see the problem posed by a total blank space where memory is supposed to be right and that of course is telling us exactly maybe how traumatic or difficult or checked out or whatever the person is that can't remember it and and that is really difficult for a memoirist and and so did you end up working your way back to the memory or asking people about what happened at the funeral how did you reclaim that yeah I did I did that but also um, I think at some point I, I had to accept that the person who experienced my dad's funeral and his death I don't think that was even fully 25 year old me because I think when you experience a loss um, or you know just a, especially a sudden thing like that, it triggers other losses. And I remember very clearly regressing um, right after he died, like going to a grocery store and buying a Barbie coloring book. And mm-hmm. that is not a detail that that went into the book. And I'm not just talking about that because Barbie's out right now. <laughs> like it is, a thing I, it is a thing I actually did. And I was going to say, you're, you are so good at this marketing. No, I'm kidding. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Uh, but but the, I mean, I I've, I've, have barely told anybody that story. But, but I think mm-hmm. now the reason that happened to me was because I was becoming six again. And mm-hmm. I was having the, my parents' divorce re-triggered, which to me felt very similar because, again, it was something they needed to protect us from. And as a six-year-old, it's like, well, why is this happening? This is changing mm-hmm. my life. So his death had a similar feel to it for me, and, mm-hmm. and I became that. So I think I had, to, I had to learn to accept that when I did write those passages about the funeral, you know, about my experience with depression as a teenager, about him moving out when I was six, the person I was dealing with, who was my, me, the narrator in those flashbacks, is even that person is somewhat developmentally delayed. <laughs> like she, she is not <laughs> the full adult you think she is. She's not the full teenager you think she is. She's still dealing with, for lack of a better word, shit that <laughs> she's been carrying for a long time and not understanding why she can't get her act together. So I, I think it's like, it's sort of okay that I don't have every single detail of what happened because I was expressing uh, the way it felt for me. 
uh, mm-hmm. in those in those moments. And and in doing that, I was almost like pushing a button, like fast forward onto who I am at you know age forty, the age I was when I was writing this, like mm-hmm. finally catching up to where I actually am. Right, and that's part of what is so interesting to me about memoirs, just how. I don't know, it feels like alive, you know, the way that our stories change in our memory, the way that we tell them differently, or that the nuance that we can add when we have time to sort of incubate a little bit. That's kind of, for me, how vital memoir is. Yeah, it's it's really um, close to the heart, right? Um, yeah. and, and my story started taking on that, you know, and I guess it's because I was writing the book as I went along, but you know, as I was living out this mission, I felt like I was living in a story all the time. And there were all these, mm-hmm. like all of the magical elements that I write about in the book, those were really happening to me in real life. And it was just, it was mm-hmm. changing the way I was living. So I, I think it's understood though, right? That that when you read a memoir, you're not getting every single, it's not an autobiography. You're not getting every detail yeah. that every person experienced. Yes, yes. And I think that's, I think memoir lovers and people who really um, are drawn to the, the genre understand that and, and maybe are drawn to it because of that, because we want to, we want to kind of inhabit, at least I should speak for myself, I want to inhabit the life and the the moments that that memoirist is bringing to me. And you know, I was going to ask you in reading the book, it was so apparent how many members of your family were invested, you know, from your husband to like your mom to, you know, brother were invested, you know, in your story or connected to this journey that you were completing for your father's list. And I'm wondering how their involvement, even when it was peripheral, informed your writing process, what that was like to know people were involved on some level well that was i mean that was changing me too that was changing me throughout the experience of doing the list because i'm sure when my dad wrote this at 29 he didn't think well i'm going to tell everybody i know about my bucket list and (laughs) they're all going to jump on board (laughs) like i really don't think that that was on the agenda for him i mean he kept it a secret he i found out recently he actually had it in his wallet when he died so oh, that wow. means I was around this piece of paper or these three pieces of paper for 25 years the whole time mm. I knew him as, as a living person. And I think that it was it was changing me because when my father died, I, you know, I wasn't great at getting the help that I needed. I had just gone through years of therapy with being diagnosed with depression. And I was like, yep, I've, I'm done with that. And mm. I didn't get so I didn't go to a support group. I didn't go to a therapist for grief. So. And I think a lot of it was I didn't feel comfortable identifying as a victim in any way or him. Mm-hmm. And I was already carrying a lot of shame. So to have this thing where I could share it with people and it was like, you know, it was a story about hope and we we're living in kind of dark times <laughs> when yeah. I started this in 2017. So mm-hmm. I think people found it refreshing in that way. Um, but to have these people who some of them who knew my dad, some of them didn't at all strangers who just came into my life and were willing to help me people just kept jumping on board and and supporting that this person had dreams and dreams matter and that was just god it was like a beautiful transformative experience it almost started to feel like a movement for me so Mm -hmm. i felt Mm -hmm. it was really i just felt it was important to describe them in the book you know as as vividly as i could because i think in some ways my dad's spirit was inhabiting them for me so it's Mm -hmm. like i had just gotten married i needed this reminder of who he was you know i i I told the story in the beginning of the book of my husband's first 
proposal that didn't go very well because I needed to show who I was, that I was this very sheltered, confused woman, and I had totally forgotten myself. So to be reminded of who I really am through openness, you know, through opening my heart to all of these people, that was, I feel like, my dad's magic. That was him you know, I'm almost going to cry right now. <laughs> that was my my relationship with him when he was alive. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and, 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 you know, he wasn't a perfect person by any means. Mm-hmm. There, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who knew him, who know that. And I tried my, my damnedest to make sure that that comes across in the book. But the person mm-hmm. I'm celebrating most of the time in this book is the dad I knew when I was a little girl because mm-hmm. that set a foundation and also the spirit I believe him to be now. Because I believe when we die, our spirits don't have those hangups anymore. So, I mean, even it's the weirdest thing when people tell me that I lost him now. It's like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, but I didn't. He's right here because mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. he, he became a very living part of my he's a present part of my life right now. Mm, yeah. In a way, writing a book, I feel like can fold him in closer to your life now. It's now you're really linked, right? I mean, you were always linked but now you'll forever, the story is known and linked in an even deeper way. I hope so. I haven't even really considered that yet. That's really profound. Thanks for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was wondering if you would be willing to read that excerpt that we talked about. Yeah, that would be great whenever you're ready. Okay. When my dad was 29, the year I was born, the year he wrote the list, he took a business trip to California He was a liquor distributor then. He visited the Robert Mondavi vineyards in Napa Valley and picked up a Cabernet Sauvignon. The vintage was 1974. He brought it home to Delaware and wrote on its label, the finest wine America has made. Then at the top of the label, open on Lara's wedding day. After he'd moved out, he sometimes joked that my mom and stepdad had drunk the wine. They hadn't. They dutifully kept the wine in a cold spot in the basement for 38 years in four different basements. It survived moving three times. When we planned our wedding, Stephen and I spent a weekend at my mom's house in Connecticut. And I said, crying, that without my dad, my wedding would feel like a compromise. My mom said, I have an idea, and went down to the basement. She came back up with the wine. Why don't we bring the bottle, she said, and when it's time to make a toast, we can pour a little into each glass. That way, even though my dad wasn't there, we could fulfill his wishes. The idea sparked a running debate in my family over whether the wine was still drinkable after all those years. My mom said it might not be the kind that aged well, and I pictured all my wedding guests choking and writhing on the floor. So I did some research. (laughs) I looked up the Robert Mondavi vintages from the 1970s and learned that in 1976, a group of esteemed French wine judges blind taste tested California wines, along with the best wines from Bordeaux and Burgundy, which had long been considered the finest. The California wines won. Both winning wines were from 1973, and the next year's vintage was said to be even finer. The taste test changed the reputation of California vineyards overnight. It also made what my dad had claimed very likely true. The 1974 Mondavi really was America's finest wine. Since we married in New Mexico, transporting the wine wasn't easy. Two weeks out, we drove to my mom's house to gather our decorations but forgot it. 
Stephen drove two hours back, then carted the wine to our apartment like a baby. I stored it in our bedroom closet, then wrapped it in bubble wrap when I packed. When I opened my luggage in New Mexico, the bottle's label was sticky and red. The plane's pressure had burst open the cork. All that time, all of that gentle care, and I'd ruined it in one fell swoop. All weekend, I couldn't get my mind off that bottle. After our vows, we gathered our guests inside the inn and told them the story of the wine. Stephen removed the cork, what was left of it, took a sip and pretended to keel over. Then I took a sip too. It was the best wine I'd ever tasted. Our guests gathered around us saying, I want some. It was like the last scene in It's a Wonderful Life. Here I'd worried everyone would be humoring me by drinking this stuff or it would turn their stomachs inside out but they all actively wanted it, this beautiful bottle my dad, mom, and stepdad had so lovingly preserved. And it had turned out to be stunning, even more stunning after all that time. I found out later that 38 years was the best time to wait to drink it. Thank you. Um, it's really nice to hear you read that. Uh, I enjoyed that uh, over again, so thank you. Thanks. Yeah, so I think I would love to talk about you were in this unique position of having this book that got some attention before it actually got published. And that is part of the reason why I wanted to wait until the big launch was over that you had just a little bit of time to breathe so you could help reflect. You could reflect for me and you know, for listeners, (laughs) what your experience was like, because my goodness, when we first talked, I think you were on um, talk shows, you were being covered in newspapers and magazines. And some of that was maybe a little bit of your own marketing, but some of it was people just grabbing your book and your story and you and getting you out there. So can you spend a little time talking about how that began and what it was like? Yeah, I mean, I'm laughing about taking a moment to breathe because before before our interview, I was setting up press for Denver, Seattle, you know, Woodstock, New York, figuring out Los Angeles. Like, I'm I'm doing a lot right now with my book tour. By the way, that's all of my own making. My publisher did not try to persuade me to go all over the country. But, you know, I I think even admitting to that, that the book tour was my idea, kind of answers your question because – I've always felt the list is its own thing. It, it's a unique idea. It's a unique story. And, and I, I remember right before the book came out too, I was stressing about, oh my God, I'm supposed to be an author now. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? And I met with this life coach who I had just met and we had like a Zoom meeting. And he's like, hey, Laura, this whole time you've been doing your dad's list as you. So you're also gonna launch your book as you. It's worked so far, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, so keep doing mm-hmm, it. And mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to sum up what happened, right? Because essentially uh, I got a lot of very early press and the reason for that was because I finished the list in December. I always knew since people were sort of following along for six years and I had these interviews in 2017 when I started that I should go back and talk to some of those people, you know, and they might be interested mm-hmm. in talking again. So I talked to Inside Edition and my editor was like, okay, okay, but only that one, <laughs> you know, because I still had like, I sold like seven months until my book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it. And then next thing I knew, the Washington Post called me because they watched the Inside Edition interview. And as I was talking to that reporter, I really did feel like, wow, she's really good. Like, I think I knew it was going to be a good article. 
I didn't know it was going to go viral, and that's what happened. It went all over the world. I was next thing I knew, I was talking to Russia and Brazil and Italy and Spain and Australia, and then Drew Barrymore's people were calling me, and then Tamron Hall's show was calling me. And I mean, that yeah, you're right. This all happened in the span of a week in January, and <laughs> I had like, I had just turned in the book, you know, the epilogue, which came after the part I just read, had just been turned in, and I felt at the time like, okay, thanks, Dad. <laughs> you know, I really did. I feel like, <laughs> like what's happening right now is a total. It's like his toast to the fact that I just finished. You know, it's, mm -hmm. he's a, he's applauding me. That is really how I took it. Um, but then I got a little nervous because uh, the consensus with my team was like, well, God, what's going to happen when it comes out? Have mm -hmm. we? You know, will the well have run dry? Basically. Mm -hmm. And so I, then I got into my pitch mode, which I hadn't done any of yet because I was so busy just you know, fielding the calls it, yeah. that were coming in. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't pitched any magazines, you know, like like the stuff that you do. And you have mm -hmm. to pitch those way in advance. I mean, I know that from working in magazines for 20 years, so. Oh, wow. Let me, let me hold on. Let's hit the pause on that. This is amazing. But I just want to say that this is really important. And uh, yeah. I think listen that up. it, it, it yeah, <laughs> listen up. Early on, all of it was that Washington Post story, really. Truly, literally, mm -hmm. all of it. Um, an NBC night. But how did you Washington. get Inside Edition? Because you got Washington Post got you from Inside Edition. So how right. did well, you get? Well, Inside because Edition? because I befriended the reporter who had talked to me mm -hmm. six years earlier. Um, right. I I stayed in touch with her. You know, um, mm -hmm. I, I I kept up with her. I said, here's what's happening with the list. She followed along for six years. She became you know like a, a friend of the list, a list helper in a way. Mm -hmm. So she was honored when I I think that's what she told me. She said she was happy that I chose her when it was over. And I said, well, it's only right because you're the first person I talked to. And mm -hmm. that is how that happened. And. Again, we didn't think it was going to be as big as it was, but you that's my other piece of advice. Do everything. Say yes to everything. Sometimes people will say things like, oh, their audience isn't that big. No. If someone <laughs> is asking you to talk about your work, talk about your work. Like, be grateful that you have the opportunity because you don't know. You don't know who's going to hear it. You really don't. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and the other part of it is people really, I think, have this weird disregard for newspapers now just because they think print is dead. And it's not. The Washington Post is a really important newspaper. It's the second biggest one in the country. And it's really important for journalists. So basically, all of these TV producers came to me because they, they read that Washington Post story. And I also had an essay in People magazine the same week because I work for people and they too read the Washington Post story. Like <laughs> they contacted me and were like, hey, do you want to write something or can we write something about you? And I was like, OK, but I but I work for you. <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, OK, then then you should write it. And that turned out to be really helpful, too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so essays like that, if you can do them, are important. Um, but but yeah, what? the thing that made you say like stop the presses a minute ago like that was <laughs> yeah i've worked in magazines for a long time i worked full time almost a decade and magazines if you're going to be if your book's coming out in june then you want to pitch those places in february or mm -hmm. or january you want to do it early because they figure out their schedule ahead of time and you know they're going to have a much better chance and and as i'm saying this i have to admit that even i missed those deadlines because mm -hmm. in January, I was so busy going on the Tamron Hall show. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and going on right. NPR and all of this TV and radio stuff that was like big stuff that was happening. And it's like we all sort of forgot about the smaller <laughs> ones. Mm-hmm. And then it, by March, I was like, oh, man, like I really need to pitch these magazines. But, you know, I, I was lucky because I had worked for so many of them that I really did have friends at a lot of them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and it ended up being okay, I think, because even though I missed a lot of deadlines for the print, I did get onto their websites. And uh, honestly, mm. like I think people do consume magazines that way more now than, than, than in the print. I'm not sure. I mean, people still subscribe and still reprint, but. Right, but you also, you got a lot of airtime. I mean, you really did get a lot of screen time, which is I think probably one of the bigger places that people consume, don't you? Um, when you say screen time, like screen time, mean, like you're like you're like on shows, you know, you're you're yes. in like video, you're like yeah. on branded shows with really big names. Well, and the one that was the the big, you know, the PS de, de, de Triumph, is that how you said it? Was uh, yeah. CBS Sunday Morning, and uh-huh. and we actually knew about that way back in February because they heard me on NPR. That's how they found me, and mm-hmm. you know, we were just planning for it. We were not talking about it we knew that there was a chance that doing that show might mean I wouldn't get to be on the Today Show or Good Morning Mm -hmm. America. Those shows don't like to compete with each other. But it was okay because CBS Sunday Morning is the biggest book-selling show there is. So, you know, the fact that this little book started out an inside edition (laughs) in January (laughs) and that was a a real get. I was very Mm -hmm. grateful for that uh, because of a nice reporter I'd known for six years. And now it's on CBS Sunday morning on Father's Day. I mean, that's insanity. And I and know. Well, but also I want to say, <laughs> you know, aside from like, okay, so there are some gifts in here, like, well, not gifts, things that you worked for. You're in the business to an extent, and and you have a story that people really wanted to talk about and promote. But there's also something else in here which is really important, and that is your ability to connect and keep relationships and be generous and grateful, right? Because you kept that connection with the Inside Edition person, and you mined your connections. And, and I mean that in a really positive way. And that, and I, I bet you you're someone who sends thank you emails and, you know, checks in with people too. Yeah. Oh, I, I, send, I send the old-fashioned thank you note. I am actually See? working on a hundred of them right now. <laughs> yeah. So this is, you know, this is not, this takes a lot of time. I mean, this is, oh, this yeah. is like, I mean, would you say this has been kind of full time for you? This is my full time job. Yeah. I have, I have yeah. a lot of copy editing jobs. I work, I mean, I work for Condé Nast. I work for people, you know, they're still in big places, but I do that freelance now. So I have been able mm-hmm. to make this like a full time job, you know, going to these places all over the country, that's expensive. It takes a lot of yeah. planning. Um, Honestly, I think the reason I was able to shift into being this person who is putting in the energy and the time, which it truly is. I mean, I think at one point I counted and I had like 500 pitches or something. Mm. And that almost doesn't make sense for a person to do that much work if they know they're about to be on CBS Sunday morning. But for Mm. me, I wanted to do it because I felt like, well, I have these connections at magazines and I'm just going to pull out all the stops here. You know, I believe so much in this story, in this book. I always have. I'm going to be upset if there's a stone I left unturned. So Mm -hmm. that is really I created sort of like a soft on ramp to the launch because I had Woman's Day. You know, I had prevention. I had um, my cousin works for the Daily Mail, so he helped me with there. I had a bunch of little things. Not I mean, they're not little by any means, by the way, but smaller than CBS Sunday morning. And then that happened and it was like this huge deal. I made the time to send out all those pitches because, you know, all it is is just a few well-written paragraphs. 
And, and yeah, I'd really, you know, I think what I was trying to say before is that I, I, w- I was able to shift into this pitching mode seamlessly because it's what I did the whole time on the project. Mm-hmm. You know, I just spent mm-hmm. six years of my life receiving help from people, um, networking with people for my dad's list, for the list items, and, and then going mm-hmm. and sharing it online, you know, not a whole lot, but to a certain amount, not the whole book. I wasn't giving it all away. But I think because of that, it became, it started to feel like a movement to people so that when, yeah. when people decided to help me, it wasn't even so much like, oh, I'm going out of my way to promote this author. It, I think it became, oh, I'm part of it now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like part I, of the story. They're, they're part yeah, of the story. they're in the story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. My acknowledgments, I wrote them after that early press thing. There's 13 pages of acknowledgments in this book. I promise that was not a marketing ploy. <laughs> and although someone on Amazon just accused me of that recently. That was really funny. Um, That's but, really really funny that someone would say that I think that anyone talking to you it's like your generosity right and your your kind of um community building with this right not everyone does that and and the other thing that strikes me too is um I've seen the graphic of your different stops for your book tour that you created and there are a lot of them and and it sounds to me like you you found these bookstores and you you got yourself to an extent into these places is that accurate yeah yeah I got all of them And what I want to say about that is that, like, this is really important because I think, and I know because I've been there and I've talked to so many authors at different stages of their publishing, especially memoirists, I don't think there's some magic fairy or, like, fairy dust or wand that's going to come and, like, tap us on the head and then all of a sudden all these bookstores want us. Now, look, some publishers (laughs) are... (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, some publishers are giant and some authors have a lot of hype going in, right? A lot. And, And people are waiting with bated breath for their their words but that is so rare and and what I want to point out is that even with all of these inroads you made and and these wonderful things that happened as as everything started to grow you still did the hard work of contacting bookstores figuring out where you should read where you should connect and you still did all that you didn't sit there waiting for things to just fall into your lap and I guess you know this this business of promoting ourselves takes pluck and endurance and you have to have this attitude that they they will be happy that they have me and they may not know what they're missing they need to know what you are who you are what you can bring to the table like no one very rarely no one is going to be knocking on doors begging us begging us to come and speak at their bookstore very rarely. So I just want to say that it's not it's not us. It's not just you, listener, who isn't getting the traction you need. Like, it's just everyone has to work really hard for this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like Oprah always says, uh, luck is preparation meeting opportunity, right? And, and you know, I think, uh, again, the nature of my project prepared me to be like this because there were so many things I was doing, like talking with President Jimmy Carter, you know, writing mm-hmm. to the Pope where I had to get over this feeling of, God, I'm a nobody. Why would they talk to me? You know, like, or, or maybe I could be a somebody if just someone would, would share what I've done. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. All, like, like almost like a passive way of going about it. I, I didn't have the luxury of doing that because this was my dad's list. I committed to doing it. So I was going to find out, find a way, find out how I could make that happen. And it was just like the Oprah quote I just gave. When I would prepare, mm. 
I would find myself in these situations where opportunity arose and something synchronistic happened and serendipitous and I received outside help. And I genuinely believe that, you know, we're supposed to embrace the unknown. We're supposed to just keep believing in what we care about and work our asses off doing it. And and if something is meant to be, it'll happen. I really do mm-hmm. think that. I mean, that's not to say that I necessarily made that Washington Post story happen. That was really a stroke of luck for me. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I don't see it as anything else but that. But at the same time, I think the time was right for it. In January of 2023, people were tired of bad news. <laughs> Most yeah. people who read that Washington Post story in the comment section, which I don't read anymore, by the way, but <laughs> I did read it then. And just, just for your mental health writers, don't do that. I did read it then and people were saying that, oh, some good news for once, you know? So so a lot of it has to do with timing. There really are, there's so many elements and variables involved when you put a book into the world is what I've learned as someone mm-hmm. just doing this for the first time. I would never speak as an expert on it. But I think if you become a person who's okay with that, you're okay with variables, you're gonna be your biggest advocate for your book no mm-hmm. matter what and work hard then you'll be fine. You'll have things work out. And truthfully, you know, when I do these book events, I'm traveling for them and that's fun. It's an adventure. But sometimes there's 50 people and sometimes there's five people. That's just how mm-hmm. it is. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not it's not something necessarily to take personally. It's really hard these days to get people to come out sometimes, right? It's just people are so used to virtual gatherings as well so I think it's harder for people to move and get out of their houses and do things yeah I mean you you can pull all the stops you can be in the biggest radio show in the biggest city and that could still happen it really could it's just Mm -hmm. my feeling is the right people are there the people Mm -hmm. I was supposed to Mm -hmm. talk to that day they came and and I'm happy Mm -hmm. with it and you know also I think another really important thing to keep in mind for your listeners is uh, maybe go out and get the art of war and uh turning pro by Stephen Pressfield because those books are like my Bible. They Mm -hmm. always talk about how the true artist or the true professional, they don't care about the results, they care about the journey. Mm. So basically, yeah, whatever happens now with this book is not, I'm not responsible for that. It belongs to the world, it doesn't belong to me anymore. What my experience was, was doing the list, writing the story, finishing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seeing it to its completion. You have to get that book into the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're if your reward is being respected as an author or or getting to have that experience of being an author or having people like your writing or applaud for you, you know, I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> because it's like it's so unpredictable and it mm. really can't be about that. And the story will reflect it. I, I think I think the story reflects mm-hmm. if the artist was doing it just for the sake of the art. Hmm. Can you, let's do a little speed round in the interest of time, um, because I want to know, I know we've kind of been talking about this, but what would you say are the most helpful ways a writer can prepare for their book launch? Oh, God, see your therapist. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I mean, yeah, that too. But also um, uh, get get a, you know, do some pampering. Uh, One thing that really helped me was, I'm not a person who tends to do this, but I I got an appointment to get my makeup done for that day. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, pl- I planned my dress for it three years in advance. It was just sitting there <laughs> waiting, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like there's just, there were so many things I started doing uh, the month before my book came out that were just planning for the time when my brain wouldn't be working very well mm-hmm. because, oh, mm-hmm. this is another really good book to get. Um, Courtney Mom, I think she's sort of in those writer circles that we're in. 
she wrote a book club before and after the book deal. And mm -hmm. she wrote some really great stuff about this. And I've been following that book like a Bible, you know, of like, well, mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. Because I think there's something about it being written on the page in front of me, you know, to mm -hmm. prepare me. This is what everybody goes through that helped mm -hmm. me to not take anything personally that happened, you know, mm -hmm. like good, good or bad. Um, I would say one thing that I really loved about my book launch experience was we just got through talking about all this amazing press I was very lucky to get. But during the week of the book launch, I had all of these people suddenly online on social media taking pictures of my father's list in their hands that they had just it had just come in the mail you know, because they had pre-ordered it. Mm -hmm. And it was just like picture after picture after picture of just people I love and, you know, and then people I don't even know. And I just kept thinking like, God, like this is what it's about, you know, mm -hmm. like this this personal connection with these people who are, who've been following along, who are genuinely excited. Like, mm -hmm. I guess I guess that's just my way of saying like, focus on what matters. Mm -hmm. Like having it be big is not what matters. What matters is you felt something, you turned it into art, and now other people are feeling it too. That's great. I know that you talked about a lead time for pitching magazines and newspapers, but can you share two or three do's and don'ts when it comes to book marketing? Is there anything that really stands out that you think everyone should know or that we shouldn't do? Oh gosh, it's so funny to me that I'm being asked this because I'm so like, this is my first time ever doing this and I would never ever pretend to have any expertise on it. Instead, I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like. And, and mm -hmm. I think that people underestimate social media followers, people underestimate their ability to sense BS, their ability to sense what you're posting because you have genuinely interesting content that you want to share. I hate that word content, but you have genuinely <laughs> interesting events in your life that you want to share with them and they're part of it too. And it's all very exciting. Like that's one way to go about doing it. That's the way I've, I've been trying to do it because I have been in disbelief about all of these things that have been happening. So when I share something, it's because I'm shocked and I, I it's like, I want to share it. And I think I've benefited from always being that way with the list. So it's like, I don't think anyone, I mean, maybe some people do and they're just not telling me, but I think the odds are good that most people who are reading my posts aren't thinking like, oh, she just wants to make money, <laughs> you know, or, or she just <laughs> wants to be important. And, you know, because the thing that kind of drives me crazy is when all of a sudden this person, you know, has become an author and then they're just like, buy this, buy this, buy it. Like there's so many repeated mm. posts that are giving you their mm. website and saying, buy this. And it makes sense that you would do that because we all know like it's about repetition in social media and, and people forget and you want to be putting it under their eyeballs. So I, I understand it. But I think also people who follow your posts are probably all the same people. So they're seeing it all the time, right? I mean, I don't know. Do you mm -hmm. ever feel that way when you watch authors posts? I know what you're talking about. I think that that's something that I learned from Allison K. Williams and Ashley Renard a little bit about posting, which was when my first book was about to come out, I wasn't feeling like I got a lot of reaction at a certain point. I was kind of new to social media and they yeah. told me I wasn't really giving anything. I was just like talking about myself and my book a lot. This was yeah. probably in June or July of 2021. It was a while back now. And they said, you have to share something or offer something or engage them, ask questions, right? And so you don't want to keep doing it again and again, like buy my book, buy my book, like you were talking about. And I try to add some different material, which is good because I have different things I can draw from now, right? Like you're a person as well as an author. What matters to you? What do you like to do? Who's who gives you joy? What, what do you do when you're not writing? You know, things like that. 
Yeah, I think that's important. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, it's exactly like what you're saying that that you're, you know, you're a writer. So keep telling stories, keep what you present should probably be in the form of a story. So you're giving them a free story, right? You're giving them a free sample of Mm -hmm. your writing. And I have not been great about keeping up with my newsletter the past couple of months because I've just been so uh, incredibly kinda busy. busy. <laughs> yeah, and and my husband's not thrilled because he's so good at book promotion. He actually works in book publishing, and he was the person who came up with most of my uh, bookstores on my tour. Um, oh, that's great. But he keeps saying, you have to get that newsletter out. And he's right. You really do need to have this consistent presence. I mean, because you could have 100 or so people reading that newsletter and that they're not even on social media. They've elected to hear what you have to say. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably very important, even though it is, gen- if you are a person who's getting five different articles you've liked that week, that is actually work that mm-hmm. you're doing. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's like your friends your friends were telling you, you have to be providing something. And, you know, I guess the best way to say it is like, don't be a commercial, be, be the storyteller <laughs> you are. Here's something else I wanted to ask you. Uh, you've given some names of books that were good, that you recommend, that helped you with marketing. Are there other memoirs or favorite books you'd want to shout out that I can add to the show notes? I now have three. And so if you want, if there's a couple more you'd like to add. Yeah, um, I really, I don't know if I mentioned these to you already, but I really love Wild by Cheryl Strait. I had watched the movie before I started writing my book, but I hadn't actually read the book. And that mm-hmm. helped me a lot with with how I shaped things. And also, you know, when she writes about her mother in that book, she's not a perfect person. You know, mm-hmm. she writes about her flaws and she writes about the difficulties in their relationship. And I really wanted to emulate that in the story I was telling. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, I thought that was incredible because he had this way of, you know, he's writing a letter to his son about being African-American in this country. And he's also incorporating so much history into mm-hmm. it and and I love that idea and a lot of my book incorporates a lot of history because my dad was an American studies major so these were the things he would have wanted to talk to me about and the other one I would say is Running Home by Katie Arnold um, mm-hmm. one of the things I really I love that book I've gotten to meet Katie she did a blurb on mine which I couldn't believe one of the things I really love about it is you know F. Scott Fitzgerald used to say that your story that you're telling should feel so unique that the voice you use or the style you use to tell it is also new and invented. Hmm. And Mm -hmm. she definitely did that because she's an ultra runner and her book is about her father dying and her, you know, finding herself as she works through that grief and anxiety. Mm -hmm. But it also feels like you're on a run with her. Mm -hmm. Like the the way the book is, is set up is that way. And I wanted mine to be that way. I wanted it to feel like you're living through the seasons with me as I'm doing this list like it's my mine isn't so much a run up a mountain but it's rather like a circular motion on a calendar if that makes sense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah well thank you for that I've read some of those others but I have not read running home so I'll check that out where can people find you where's the best place for people to connect with you bylaracarney.com is where you can get everything and, and order the book and my father's list that's me on Instagram and Facebook and I actually do Twitter sometimes my husband helps me with that sometimes it's <laughs> LAC30 on Twitter did you know that it's now called X that's what I meant to say on X no no I just I thought that maybe <laughs> I was gonna be giving you like a news flash because I'm usually behind on everything oh my god just... they, they called it X I can't believe it <laughs> thank you for that 
So how do you feel? This was the question that I was dying to ask you that I almost forgot. Now that your book baby has been in the world for a few months, how do you feel? Oh, she just doesn't belong to me. Like I said, mm-hmm. I have to let go of it. I have to, I mean, you know, my husband has noticed, I mean, last week was the 20th anniversary of my dad's death. Mm. And it hit me very differently um, than other anniversaries have. And, you know, the 10th anniversary, I think, was around the time when I was becoming an activist and I was starting to recognize, okay, I need to process this stuff. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like unconsciously, I wasn't conscious that I was thinking that way. Like, I need to move forward here in life. And to now be at the 20 year mark and to have this book exist and to have finished all of his dreams and to now have my own list and, be, and living in such a way that I'm prioritizing my dreams, I'm adjusting to having transformed in this way and, and almost like taking baby steps with it, figuring that out, you know, who am I now in the world having gone through mm-hmm. this, but it is still a grief process for me because now, as opposed to letting go of my dad, I'm letting go of this book. And I think having this very slow book tour that's going back to all the places that are in the book, it's really helping me to do that. It's like, I'm just saying, you know, 28 goodbyes over a period of six months and just just being present, being in it. I, and I think, I don't know, depending on what, I don't think it matters what you've written about. If you have a memoir or a book and it's your first one and you put it in the world, there's gonna be that that grief process, right? I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for reflecting on that. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your insight into what these last years, lots of years have been like for you. And um, thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You asked great questions. Hey, Memoir fam. Audible Books has partnered with Let's Talk Memoir to offer Let's Talk Memoir listeners a 30-day free trial of Audible. I listen to Audible Books when I'm driving, when I'm walking the dogs, when I'm cleaning up the house or folding laundry, all those times I can't use my hands and eyes to read memoirs and other books, I'm listening to them. It's a great way to keep on learning and taking in stories even when I can't turn pages. So if you would like to check out Audible, if you haven't yet done that, you can do so for free for the first 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com slash Let's Talk Memoir. That's www.audibletrial.com slash Let's Talk Memoir. Thank you, Audible, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.